Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Our consultant virologist, Dr. Chris Smith, is back by popular demand. Kia ora, Chris. How are you? Oh, I'm in good shape. Hi, Kim. Good. I'm glad you're in good shape because you've been working very hard. Let us talk <laughs> about the uh, World Health Organization warning that Europe could face a winter wave of infections come October, November, presumably. Would this be an educated guess, Chris, given the trajectories of influenza, for example? Well, all viruses, with a few rare examples, are more common in wintertime than summertime. And this is put down to simple virological principles about the spread, which is that we spend more time indoors, cuddled up with each other in the cosy warm when it's wintertime. The windows are closed, so we spend less time outside. There's less sunshine. The air's less humid. All these factors play a role. And as a result, viruses find it easier, particularly viruses that spread through the respiratory route, like coronavirus, and they spread more easily in wintertime. So flu, yes. Common cold, yes probably coronavirus as well. It's probably not um, a, a coincidence that it took off the way it really did in the winter times in many climes around the world. So nothing to do with temperature, it's to do with human proximity. I think that uh, the the dominant factor is human proximity. Temperature is going to play a role because if you've got nice high temperatures, the virus particles are going to be less stable. They're going to break down more quickly in high temperatures. The other thing that they'll do is when you've got higher temperatures, you tend to have higher humidity, certainly in the UK. And if you've got higher humidity, a lot of the spread that we're seeing with this is what's called droplet spread. And this is where when you breathe or cough or sneeze, or just speak to people, you are expelling a fine mist of droplets from your mouth. And because those droplets come from your airways and the virus grows in your airways, you're producing little bubbles of moisture with virus packaged up inside them. And if those droplets are hovering in air, which has higher humidity... Because water molecules like to get together with other water molecules and they find it easier to do that where there are already lots of other water molecules, if you've got fine droplets in the air, the stray water molecules in very humid air will join those droplets, make them bigger, and then they sink to the floor more quickly and get trodden underfoot. So that's why in the summertime the droplets don't tend to be so airborne for so long so therefore the spread is a bit retarded in the summertime for that reason as well still with the world health organization it's warning that the virus may never be eradicated and become endemic does that seem like the most likely outcome to you yeah i mean my instinct is that they're spot on 
And the reason for me saying that is that if you look at the behaviour of the virus, it's very well optimised to spread around in humans. It's got a very high R-value reproduction index, so it's spreading very easily between people. And it also has an asymptomatic phase. So many people who are infected with it have few or no symptoms. And as a result, it finds it very easy to spread and hide in plain sight because it doesn't stand out from the crowd. And because it's so well optimised to us, it's so so readily able to spread and no one at the moment is immune to it. It's going to continue circulating till it gets to everybody. And because lots of people are going to have it in circulation, as more babies are born who are susceptible, they're eventually going to catch it too. So I think it's going to become another one of the human coronaviruses that circulate. There are four common human coronaviruses that uh, tend to coincide in their peak with the winter again. And we've known about those four coronaviruses for a really long time. They just circulate. They produce relatively mild infections and they they tend to uh, to cause a few percent or account for a few percent of the colds and coughs that we get in winter times. I suspect that this, if it's allowed to go to its natural conclusion, will join the party. And will it change and mutate in the way that the flu virus does? And should we get a vaccine, we'll need to change it every year. OK, well, the phenomenon you're referring to with flu is called antigenic drift and the mechanism behind that is that flu has rna as its genetic material and when the flu virus copies itself inside the nucleus of our cells it introduces mistakes and those mistakes are or genetic spelling mistakes otherwise called mutations arrive at a rate of about one in ten thousand so the flu virus is about ten thousand genetic letters long so therefore every flu virus that you make has at least one genetic spelling error in it so flu makes a lot of mistakes and every time it makes one of these mistakes those mistakes can do one of two things they can either affect the way that the virus grows in a good way and make it better at growing and spreading or they can impact on the virus in a negative way and because you're making loads and loads of virus you basically select for the ones that work the best what applies to selective pressure human immunity so in other words the more virus there is in circulation uh, in people who are already immune to it the more it's going to change and so we are creating a moving feast with the flu because a there's a lot of immunity in the population already and people are using flu vaccines and those flu vaccines do direct the direction of evolution that the flu follows. Now, the coronavirus, on the other hand, is much more antigenically stable. What I mean by that is that unlike the flu, where these genetic spelling mistakes change the appearance of the flu, so it makes it look different to your immune system, the coronavirus is introducing far fewer mistakes into its genetic code as it grows and spreads. In fact, people are tracking this. There's a website called nextstrain.org if people want to look at it, where they're building family trees of the virus, and you can trace its origins right back to Wuhan in uh, December when the first samples that, uh, were, were collected. And you'll see that if you look at the numbers of changes and the lineages of that virus, there's very few, maybe a dozen or so now. So it's, it's adding about two genetic changes per month that it's spreading through the human population. And that doesn't seem to be changing in any demonstrable way. Uh, this gives us encouragement because if a virus is antigenically stable in this way, it doesn't mean it's going to sidestep a vaccine. It's uh, going to probably therefore remain on target for that vaccine so the vaccine if we come up with one or natural immunity if you get infected that way will probably protect you for a longer period of time or at least it's got a good prospect of doing that all right we're not entirely sure about that yet 
No, um, we're not entirely sure about that yet. I think people are sounding a cautionary note both in the World Health Organization and individual health organizations, and I think they're doing it for two reasons. One is because genuinely we just don't know, and uh, we've only had about six months of experience with this virus, so the longest we can say you're immune for is about as long as the first person to ever get it who remains immune, and that's going to be about six months. In the case of experimental animals, they've got monkeys they've been putting this into, and uh, those monkeys get an infection that's quite similar to the human manifestation. They develop antibodies, they develop immunity, and if you challenge them with the virus, they can't reacquire it. So it does look like uh, you get long-term immunity with this, but I think they also want to avoid people then seeking out infection in the same way as we used to have chickenpox parties back in the day. We did for my brother anyway, and there was a lady who uh, got into trouble in America for mailing people lollipops that had been sucked by chickenpox patients to, so oh, people could have their own chickenpox parties. Um, well, it was illegal. You see, the, the FDA did her and said that this was a drug and um, this is a therapeutic so she she was uh, in trouble we had to go to court um, so don't do that but um, the, the point is that I think they want to discourage people from actively seeking out Im- uh, infection in order to gain immunity because people might be coerced for the wrong reasons into doing this they may feel there's a perverse incentive to go and catch it and become immune and that could of course provoke more spikes and increase the odds of spreading it to other people so I think there probably is we're, we're going to find that we get long term immunity to this thing that's going to be my speculation that's my finger in the liquor yeah. finger and stick it in the air. i think we're going to find it's going to be fine but at the moment don't we're being cautious and i don't i've don't washed my hands it's okay <laughs> that um expression antigenic drift is that another word another term for mutation well the thing that drives antigenic drift is the process of mutation because all viruses okay. mutate and when they copy their genetic information especially viruses that use RNA which is a chemical relative of DNA except that unlike DNA where you have two strands wrapped around each other and one is the mirror image of the other and that's like having a backup of all your data on your computer so if you lose one copy you've got the other one to fall back on so you can cross check the message and it's good for integrity of your message RNA is a single strand of information and this means that there's nothing to check it against so when you're copying it if you make a mistake you've no idea that you've made a mistake and you just carry on blithely and that mistake is then carried into the progeny virus and sometimes it can be really beneficial and if you're a norovirus that causes uh, say diarrhea and vomiting one of the most successful viruses of all kind of all time really in that regard uh, it makes a ferocious number of mistakes uh, one in every 200 genetic letters that it copies it introduces an error. Um, this is a bit like you sitting in the classroom copying things off the blackboard and, and every time you write the second hundredth character, you've made a spelling mistake. And you think uh, in a Twitter message you can write 280 characters, so roughly once in every Twitter message you've spelled something wrong and then the entire Twitter sphere then retweet your, your error and, and it proliferates that way. There are calls for a people's vaccine. And our former Prime Minister, Helen Clark, is one of the signatories uh, to a letter um, which is going to be given to health ministers at the World Health Assembly next week, virtual meeting next week. Can you, can you see that people's vaccine becoming a reality? Um, I want as many vaccine projects and uh, as many irons in the fire as we can possibly get with this. Because if you talk to any pharmaceutical company, they will tell you that of all of their efforts to do anything in the therapeutic or vaccine sphere, 90% of the time they fail. 
And this is not because they're useless, they're very good. It's it's because they're very good that they get 10% success rate. It's very hard to do this. And there are lots of hurdles, there are lots of stumbling blocks. And the more goes you have at doing this, in the more different ways, the more different approaches you've got, the more ways you're going to overcome all those stumbling blocks. And they could be virological stumbling blocks, they could be immunological stumbling blocks, they could actually be sociological stumbling blocks. And so the more ways you've got to get around various hurdles the better, because ultimately we need a range of options. We need a plan A, a plan B, and possibly even a plan C. So the more options there are, the more people attacking this in more different ways, the more likely we are to arrive at something that will work and that we can get into the people who need it. I wish to ask you this question because some people are so adamant about it. You do not need a vaccine, says this listener. You need to target vitamin D level to at least 30 milligrams per milliliter whatever that means. Is there any evidence to show that, as the listener further says, vitamin D insufficiency is connected with fatalities from COVID-19? Vitamin D is linked to immune function and there is a role for vitamin D in a range of disorders, including autoimmune disorders like multiple sclerosis. And we find that in countries where there are low levels of vitamin D, there are proportionately higher levels of things like the inflammatory disease, multiple sclerosis. So there may be a link here, and there, people have suggested associations, but at the moment they're just that, they're associations. And you have to be really careful before you say something causes something else to happen, or the reverse effect prevents something from happening. So at the moment people are actively pursuing all of these sorts of options. Uh, this morning I was in a conversation with researchers in Perth, Western Australia, where we're setting up a project in order to look for biomarkers, which are basically chemical fingerprints which are going to be predictive of someone's outcome when they catch a disease like coronavirus. Because at the moment we have no way of knowing if you're on the risk list or not, as far as the virus is concerned. And it may well be that if we look in a person, we can find a combination of various chemicals which are present in that individual at certain levels relative to each other. And if we can work out what that cocktail of chemicals is and what the magic levels of them are by looking at lots of people who've either had a good outcome or a bad outcome with coronavirus, we'll be able to find a predictive set of these biomarkers and these tests will be really cheap to do and really fast. And that's going to be a breakthrough because we'll be able to then go up to people and say, your risk of coronavirus is really very low. Your risk if you catch coronavirus, on the other hand, is really very high. And this means we'll, we'll be able to help people to know where they stand and whether or not to worry quite as much. And it may well be that there are far fewer people that really need to worry. And while we wait for a vaccine, it will take some of the heat out of uh, people's concern if we can find what these markers are. It's only just the beginning. It'll take a while. A lot of people are asking about what could be an inflammatory disorder known as Kawasaki disease caused by, it seems, COVID-19. United States, uh, UK and Spain, hospitals have reported admitting a quite a high number of children with a mix of what's described as toxic shock and symptoms seen in Kawasaki disease. What's your take on that? Uh, it's early days again. Uh, I've seen in my entire career one child with possible Kawasaki syndrome this although sorry to interrupt um but uh, a listener got to me i uh, got a text to me a couple of weeks ago after you said it was vanishingly rare 
and said that her daughter had acquired it and the GP uh, diagnosed it straight off, thereby implying that it wasn't as rare as you were suggesting. Oh, no, just because something's rare. Sometimes rare things are the things that everyone knows about. For example, if you ask any doctor what are the causes of pancreatitis, on the list, they will tell you that scorpion venom is a cause of pancreatitis. And that's, that's not because it's <laughs> right. a common thing. It's because it's the one bizarre thing on the list that you think, now that's really weird, and you remember it. Uh, Kawasaki Point disease is, is rare, um, thankfully. And when you see this, you see a child who has a sudden abrupt onset of a very high sustained fever that despite giving them stuff like paracetamol, it won't go away. They also get very red tongue and hands and feet. Their glands come up, so they get swollen lymph nodes. And later on, the ends of their fingers go all peely and the toes do the same around the nails. And it's very striking. And that's what's going on visibly on the outside. But on the inside, this is an inflammatory condition. It's some kind of autoimmune state. And it also causes inflammation in the heart muscle. And another longer-term consequence can be aneurysms that form in the coronary arteries around the heart. And thankfully, this is this is a rare phenomenon. We, we are very lucky that we don't see more people with this because you wouldn't want people having this. But what has happened is people are noticing that, uh, that a small number of children are presenting with this, but more children than you would expect to be presenting with it. And so there is speculation that there may be some kind of interaction with the new coronavirus that's triggering this. And indeed, we do know that some of the manifestations of the coronavirus in the lungs, for example, when people develop severe disease, that's not the virus, it's your immune response to the virus. So it is doing stuff to deregulate your immune response and doing other things, including we talked on this programme a few weeks ago about people presenting with, th with thrombosis, blood clotting, when it shouldn't. There's been findings that people are making strange factors in the bloodstream, including the same sorts of antibodies that you get in people with lupus, another kind of inflammatory condition, and that's triggering some of these blood clotting disorders. It looks like it may be that the virus is deregulating the immune system in a similar way to the way that Kawasaki disease does. So there may be a link at the moment people are actively pursuing it to, to understand it better. But COVID-19 then could could pose a much greater risk to children than previously thought. Well, uh, you have to say, well, how many cases of this have we seen relative to the number of children? And when we've got the answer to that question, we'll know really what the increase in risk is. It may well be that uh, if you've got many, many millions of people catching something and a small number, thankfully, getting this syndrome, that actually the risk is very, very low. But at the moment, we just don't know. There are reports of people who've had COVID-19, adults who've had COVID-19, suffering from what they're calling a long-tail form of the virus, weird and, and wide-ranging symptoms and prolonged weeks and weeks with apparent recovery and then a relapse. And disease specialists have been quoted as saying that COVID is the strangest disease they've seen. It's a multi-system disease. Mm. Do you think that a lot of things are being put in the COVID-19 basket when actually they're not? What's going on? Well, possible. I have a close friend who taught me when I was at university and he pinged me a message the other day to say he was in hospital and uh, and I wrote back to him and said, well, what's going on? And he said, uh, got coronavirus. And he caught it, ironically, in hospital when he'd gone in to have some back surgery, came home and just thought because he was spending a lot of time not moving around much because of letting his back heal up, that... Uh, 
when he was moving around, he was profoundly out of breath just because he was out of shape from not having done very much. And it, it took actually a, a relative who was also a medical student to go around and help him change a wound dressing who said, you are profoundly short of breath for the amount of activity you're doing, did a, a, a blood uh, oximetry test on him and, uh, and, and a respiratory rate and said, you know, you, you're really, really profoundly short of breath and have low oxygen. And he ended up back in hospital. And... Um, and he's now thankfully recovered and home again. But he was sitting at home with the, the very presentation that we discussed here a few weeks ago, which is these people who get this silent, silent hypoxia, where people just compensate for the fact their lungs are injured by breathing a bit harder. And they've got chronically low oxygen because their lungs are not working very well. I think probably some of the manifestations of the, the long tail that you're referring to with this is that that actually this is quite an insult. It's quite a knock to your system. If you get severely unwell with it, it does take you quite a while to bounce back under certain circumstances. It takes a while for the lungs to heal up. And if you're not getting enough oxygen into your bloodstream, this has a knock-on effect for every organ in your body because every bit of our body needs a, a healthy supply of oxygen. And if there's not enough oxygen going around the system, it's like you trying to live at the top of Everest. And, uh, you know, everyone deteriorates because you need the oxygen in your bloodstream in order for your tissues to function properly not to make waste products that uh, mess up other tissues and mess up your biochemistry and to make you feel well and if you're feeling unwell and your tissues are not working properly you're more susceptible to everything else going wrong so it could well be that at the root of all of this is the is the lung injury you had in the first place plus the toxic insult of this and then there's possibly other things we've, we've already been discussing which is things like immune deregulation we, we just don't know yet which is why doing what we're going to do with this project between Cambridge and Australia to look for these biomarkers and also follow people through on their illness journey from relatively early in their illness through their coronavirus infection and then out the other side as they recover. Hopefully, by doing that longitudinal analysis, we'll also get some insights into the sorts of questions, the answers to the sorts of questions that you're asking me. We've, we've measured this before, um, different strains of the coronavirus. Um, and I'm wondering if, if there could be an explanation that lies there. Um, one listener said, do some countries have a more virulent strain of it, hence explaining the differences in survival rates? Uh, no, we don't really think so. There, there have been some headlines which are probably a bit misleading about this. The virus mutates or changes very slowly, as I've already said, which means it's only accrued a handful of changes between its origin in China and where it is in most parts of the world these days. And those changes, most scientists agree, are in parts of the virus that really are inconsequential in the grand scheme of things in terms of what the virus looks like to our immune system and its function within our cells. There certainly doesn't seem to be a very very strong association of one particular lineage with one particular set of clinical outcomes. Now, that may become clear as time goes on. You know, I, I may turn out to have that wrong, but I'm, I'm pretty sure at the moment, and the most of the scientific community agree, that there is not a strong evidence base for a mutation or some kind of substrain accounting for these differences in, in presentation. So, I mean, you're talking about survival rates and the the risk factors associated with becoming seriously ill and dying. They vary. Do we have, a, and of course your biomarker um, testing will elucidate a certain amount of this. There's a big Oxford study of NHS data on 17.5 million UK adults and they seem to show, nearly 6,000 deaths, seem to show key risk factors. Uh, being male, 
being older, severe asthma, and uncontrolled diabetes. Mm. Now, I can understand severe asthma because your lungs are already debilitated. Older age, perhaps the same. What about being male? Yep. And uh, that emerged uh, emerges as a, a quite a profound risk factor. If you look at the number of people who are initially diagnosed with the disease, there's already a bias, 58% versus 42% male-female. And it may be that the women uh, are represented at a lower level because they have fewer symptoms, so they're less likely to take themselves off to get tested. That might account for the infection bias. But then there's the progression bias. If you look at the cases in intensive care, there is a strong skew towards male sex. 70% of the cases are men, 30% are female. We don't know why. What we do know is that the ACE2 receptor, which is present on cells, which uh, the virus gets into, that's its target, it's the doorway into the cell that the virus uses, this is more heavily represented on cells in men than in women so that might play a role and intriguingly the same bias was also seen with the original SARS virus when researchers looked more carefully in the aftermath and injected it into mice and they found that when they tested male and female mice male mice succumbed much more readily than female mice but if the female mice underwent an oophorectomy they had their ovaries taken out which would make them have low estrogen levels the mortality rates roughly equalized between the two now that was the original SARS virus this new one is a different virus but it's about 80 plus percent similar and it's in it's using the same target receptor angiotensin ACE2 uh, on the surface of cells and therefore the the uh, reason why this is happening may be similar between the two. We don't know exactly what the biochemistry of this is yet, but there does appear to be a sort of protective effect in of, of female sex and an deleterious effect of male sex in whether or not you succumb to severe disease with this. The same can account for diabetes. Diabetes and hypertension also increase the expression of the ACE2 receptor in various target tissues, which makes it easier for the virus to get in and, and set up a rampant infection in those individuals. Hasn't a German study shown that low testosterone levels could predispose you to suffering more from COVID-19, which would seem to contradict what you just said no because it could be an independent risk factor because um male sex could be one thing it could be that the being male causes something to do with the angiotensin uh, converting enzyme receptor uh, two that could be an independent risk factor which is more heavily expressed in men than in women and then testosterone could be an independent effect I, i'm not aware of that piece of research i'd have to go and take a look at that but um that could be an independent factor an independent biochemical effect which uh, which further shifts the probability of either getting the infection or getting the infection more severely for instance i'd have to go and look that one up but uh, just because uh, you're male it doesn't mean it's the testosterone that's causing the effect or that the testosterone can't have an independent effect right um somebody has asked whether the virus can attach itself does attach itself is more likely to attach itself to exhaled cigarette smoke or vape smog would this pose a higher risk than normal exhaling because the smoke would come from deep in the lungs and hang in the air? It's probably unlikely that the virus is going to spread in that manner. The particles of vape are very tiny. They're, they're much smaller molecules than the big droplets of water which has got virus in, 
inside it. And sure, if you're breathing more heavily because you're vaping or because you've damaged your lungs uh, because you have been a heavy smoker in the past, for example, and you then catch coronavirus, then it's possible that you're infected at a higher level and more likely to be unwell. And therefore, if you're coughing and spluttering and breathing more heavily, you're blowing out more virus into the environment. That might affect the risk profile for those around you. But the vape material itself, the smoke, is probably not in and of itself anything, an independent risk factor. It's probably not going to enhance the infectivity of the virus. But what it will do is act as a bit like a canary in the coal mine. If you can smell that vape, you're smelling molecules that a few seconds ago were in someone else's lungs. And if they happen to have exhaled a nice big plume of viruses, they will be following the same airflow. And then you could potentially be breathing those in as well. Somebody asks, if you have had pleurisy in the past... Does that make you more vulnerable to COVID-19? My guess would be yes. What is pleurisy? Pleurisy is the pain that you feel when you inflame your pleura. The pleura are layers around the lungs. You have your visceral pleura and your parietal pleura. The parietal pleura is the layer that's attached to your chest wall and it's a very thin, smooth, it almost looks like mother of pearl layer on the inside of the chest wall. And applied to it is the visceral pleura, which is a similar layer over the lung surface. And between the two is a very thin layer of moisture. And it's a bit like if you take two microscope slides and put a blob of water between them, the glass is almost impossible to separate. And this enables the lungs to be mechanically coupled to the movements of your chest wall. So when you raise your ribs, lower your diaphragm and lower the pressure in your chest cavity, the air pressure pushes air into your lungs. And then when you uh, relax your rib cage and bring your diaphragm back up, you apply pressure on the lungs and push the air out again. If you get lung infection, if you get, say, a a low bar pneumonia or a bacterial infection usually, then the inflamed lung tissue can spread the infection onto the pleural surface of the lung and set up a reactive inflammation on the lung surface. And this can make the area sticky and rough. So instead of sliding smoothly over each other as the lung moves and, uh, and the chest expands, it gets stuck and it's very, very painful. And it's every time you try and breathe in, it's like someone sticking a knife in you. And um, people say people will certainly remember it if they've had it. The fact that you've had that once, though, when you're all better from that, then there should be no further onward risk factor. If there's been underlying lung damage or the reason that you had that in the first place was there was an underlying lung problem and that hasn't gone away, then it's possible you have some kind of chronic lung disease and your risk might be slightly higher. But in and of itself, it is not going to be a risk factor that guarantees you're going to have a worse outcome if you catch coronavirus. Thank you. Uh, You mentioned ACE2 receptors earlier and again, people are asking whether... If being on an ACE blocker blood pressure medication would be beneficial under these circumstances? Uh, When all this first started to surface, people were very worried about this consideration. Although the drugs that we use for blood pressure control that are called ACE inhibitors target a different structure than the ACE2 receptor that the virus uses it's still tied up with the same blood pressure and inflammation regulating system, so therefore could have an effect. People have uh, looked quite carefully, and in fact, rather than increasing your risk if you're on blood pressure-lowering medication that's uh, ACE inhibitor type or an ACE receptor blocker, in fact, it looks like it may even reduce your risk of getting severe coronavirus infection if you're on an ACE inhibitor. I wouldn't, however, advise anyone to go out, get hold of ACE inhibitors and start taking them just on the off chance this will reduce your risk because you're more likely to throw your biochemistry up the wall or or, uh, start to fall over because you have very low blood pressure so don't do that but if you're taking these tablets they're not going to increase your risk as far as we can tell they may even protect you
Uh, very good to talk to you. Thank you, Chris. Take care and we'll talk to you again soon. Been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Kim. Dr. Chris Smith, who is a Cambridge virologist. Thank you, Chris, and thank you for staying 10. up for us and I hope you can get to bed.